Hello, and welcome to another episode of Thoughts While I Drive to Work. Once again, we are not driving to work. This is Thoughts While I'm in My Garage. Um, I want to apologize for, I don't know how we got on this trend of recording episodes on Fridays and putting them up. For some reason, that's what we've been doing these past couple weeks. I want to get back to uh, releasing on Tuesdays. Uh, past couple weeks have been hard. It has been very cold here in Alaska. We've had this stretch in the past three weeks where we've been at uh, about negative 25 every day and it just makes life every aspect of life harder and so i think that might have uh, something to do with our our kind of misguided time frame that we have going on here so with that being said i hope you all enjoyed our 90th episode that we had um coming up on the big 100th episode here you know in uh 10 weeks or so. Don't really know what we want to do for it. If you guys have any ideas, uh, you know where to email me. Thoughts while I drive to work at gmail.com. All one word, one space. No spaces, no caps. Thoughts while I drive to work. All one word, no spaces, no caps. So today we are going to be talking about the Apostle Peter. And I want to just get this out of the way right in the beginning. Um, I have nothing against the Apostle Peter at all. Um... I may sound a little harsh of him as we uh, discussed today, but really what today is about is disproving some kind of commonly believed ideas and or myths about the Apostle Peter so we can actually appreciate who he actually is. And we'll talk kind of about why some of these beliefs are, are out there. And as always, I will prove with scripture what I am telling you. So without further ado, most of our common misconceptions about Peter come from the Catholic Church. Um, they really do. And it is because it's kind of one of their core beliefs that Peter is the first pope. That he was the first pope in Rome. And that Jesus proclaimed him to be the first pope in Rome. And so, I mean, if you want to be Catholic and, and believe that, then that's, that's your business. The problem here is, though, is that some of these misconceptions that we have about Peter that started in the Catholic Church have kind of wormed their way into other theology and other denominations. And who don't believe that Peter is the Pope, but take some of these long-held beliefs taught by the Catholic Church to be true. And again, not here to bash on Catholics. I'm just here to uh, show you the truth. Okay. So the first is that Jesus proclaims Peter to be the first pope and says that Peter is the rock and that he will build his church on. So they take this section of scripture we're going to look at to say that Jesus himself proclaims Peter to be the pope and says that he will build his church on Peter, meaning that Jesus says that Peter will be the first pope and that on Peter will Jesus build his church, meaning that the Catholic church is Jesus's church and Peter is where it begins and who he builds it on. So they get that from Matthew 16, verses 13 through 20. So we're going to go there. Matthew 16, verses 13 through 20 says, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea of Philippi, he asked his disciples, so the twelve, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, But who do you say I am? Then Simon, son of Peter, said, re replied, 
You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Okay, so I guess really we only need to read till uh, verse 18. So, going back, Jesus is coming into the district of Caesarea of Philippi, and he asks his disciples, so the twelve, who do people say the Son of Man is? Son of Man, he's referring to himself. Who do people say that I am? He asks his twelve. And then it just gives kind of an ambiguous answer as far as who replies to him. It just says that, and they said. Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others, Jeremiah, are one of the prophets. They're kind of... They're dancing around. Yeah, these are what people say about you. And then Jesus asks them, again, talking to the 12, but who do you say I am? And Simon, he, and Simon Peter, so just, just Peter, is the first one to reply. He says, you are Christ, the son of the living God. So he hits the nail right on the head. Simon's always one of the first ones to talk. Um, sometimes that gets him in trouble um, in the way that, you know, sometimes he uh, spouts off an answer without really thinking about what he's saying, he, Peter's always enthusiastic. So one of the things I like about him, he's always right up in the action, ready to go. And Jesus answers him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Just another word for, for Peter. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. So him saying that again, that it was God who revealed this to Peter, that Peter had the right answer, that Jesus was the son of the living God. Verse 18, Jesus says him, tells Peter, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So, they say that right there is when Jesus says that Peter is the rock that Jesus will build his church on. But that's not what Jesus says. Jesus says, verse 18, And I tell you, you are Peter, and this rock I will build my church. So not you are Peter, and you are the rock I'll build my church. No, you are Peter, and on this rock I'll build my church. So what is the rock? If it's not Peter, then what, what is the rock that Jesus will build his church on? Because it's not Peter. The rock that he'll build his church on is Peter's answer. Okay, so you got to remember, Jesus came to be the fulfillment of the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant being the sacrificial system that was passed down from Abraham, from Isaac from, from Moses, all these guys of the sacrificial system which the Israelites would be forgiven of their sins through these elaborate ceremonies and um, customs and celebrations and sacrifices that have been, up until this time, the connection between God and man. But there's a difference here between having these priests and these ceremonies. This isn't a church. So you got to remember, when they refer to the church, they're not referring to a physical building. They're referring to a body of believers. So we're not talking about on this idea, will I build this building? No, on this idea, I will build my church. That his answer, you are Christ, the son of the living God. That is the idea in which the new covenant and in which this new relationship between God and man in which there are not these sacrifices in which that there it will be this one last sacrifice Jesus himself for the final forgiveness of sins for the final atonement 
that we can be connected and have direct access through to him and not having to go through the priests and not having to go through the sacrificial system. That idea is what he will build, is the rock, is what he will build his new church on. Not Peter. Now, Peter is, of course, very influential in the starting of the church. And, you know, we see him at the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit coming down. Man, he's there. But the other 12 are too. Um, I mean, and so is Paul. So it's not to say he's not important, but to say that he is the first pope that started the Catholic Church, pretty darn big stretch. Um, pretty big stretch. Because, it again, it takes away from what Jesus did. It takes away from Peter's answer and puts the idea on Peter. It's not about Peter. It's about Jesus. Okay, so Peter, Jesus did not um, ordain Peter to be the first pope. Okay, the second one. And you get a lot of different answers on this depending on who you ask, but unfortunately it comes back to Catholicism. They believe again that Peter's the first pope, and if he is the first pope, then he can't have a wife. Okay. So we're going to read 1 Corinthians 9. Five. Take me a second to get there. First Corinthians chapter nine, verse five. Don't we have the right to bring a Christian wife with us as the other apostles and the Lord's brothers do and as Peter does? Okay, so right there, referencing Peter's wife. Don't we have the right to bring these women with us? Again, they're saying that they want to take the women with them on these missionary journeys. Don't we have the right? So not only can we infer that Peter has a wife, but that she goes with him places. Um, pretty cool. We're also going to read in Matthew 8, 14. <sighs> Excuse me. Um, Matthew 8, 14. When Jesus arrived at Peter's house, Peter's mother-in-law was sick in bed with a fever. Okay, so again, Peter's mother-in-law. It is hard to have a mother-in-law if you don't first have a wife. So they combat this answer a couple different ways. Some of them just um, people I've talked to refuse when they want to make Peter this holier-than-thou um, celibate uh, pope. They just say that those are misinterpretations. Um, I don't know how you can misinterpret that, but whatever. And then some of them that don't misinterpret it will instead say um, that she died, that she was she was dead. Okay, well I can't I can't prove that she's alive. You know, um, I can prove that she's alive because it talks about them wanting to bring their wives with them on missionary journeys like Peter does in First Corinthians. So she's definitely alive at the time of Jesus. She's definitely alive at that point. So we know that she's alive, and we'll talk a little bit more about um, that here in a second. The other one is that they say that he divorced her, which I think is just absurd. Um, nowhere in Scripture does Jesus ask you to get divorced. Nowhere in Scripture would that be condoned. That is, that is highly, now I won't even say it's highly unlikely. It just straight up didn't happen. That's absurd. Um, fourth is they say that Peter remained married to her, but in order for him to become the first pope, he was celibate towards her for the remaining remainder of her, her life. 
for, or for Peter's life, whatever you want to say. Um, also, that's ridiculous. Um, sorry, a little R-rated for a second. God created man and woman, and he created the relationship between man and woman to be something that glorifies him. A healthy marriage, including sexual relations between a man and wife, is glorifying to God. He created it as a way for man and woman to take pleasure in each other, and in doing so, glorify his covenant and glorify him. So once again, Jesus would never ask Peter to be celibate towards his his wife in order to serve serve him. Um, that just goes against everything else we know that God has ordained about marriage and um, the marriage bed, just in general. So again, you have to interpret scripture with scripture. If something someone is saying go against other things that the scripture says, well then you know, probably not true. Okay. Um, so she definitely did exist. I mean, we can prove it in scripture. They were definitely married. The idea of him divorcing her is ridiculous and goes against scripture. The idea of him being celibate towards her is again, ridiculous and goes against scripture. So what happened to her? So nowhere in scripture, nowhere, and I'll back this up later for all you naysayers that want to bring up the last chapter of first uh, Peter, because we'll get there. Nowhere in scripture does it show us with Peter being in Rome. Nowhere. But we are led to believe that he was martyred in Rome. And I'm not going to argue that because I believe that to be true. Um, we have a ton of historical um, historians of the time that are very credible that reencount our, um, that talk about Peter being martyred in Rome and him being crucified upside down because he didn't want to be crucified the same way Jesus did. You know, it's not in scripture, but it is talked about by so many different historians that we are, we're led to believe it's, it's true. Um, everything else these historians have written down has been pretty much proven. They're proven to be very credible. So, you know, I'm not going to argue that. Um, but we don't know how long he was in Rome or anything like that. So why I bring that point up with Peter's wife is two of the same um, historians that talk about that are very credible that talk about Peter's death. One of them being Clematis of Alexandria would actually also record Peter's wife being martyred in Rome with Peter. So going back to our verse in First Corinthians, we know Peter's wife went and did ministry with him. They were a team. That's how marriage is supposed to be, is a team glorifying God, doing his work. So it only makes sense. As we know, Peter took his wife with him places to evangelize. That's what that verse is about. I mean, read it in context. There's more there. But, you know, for the sake of what we're saying, Peter's wife was with him on these missionary journeys. Why would she not also be crucified, or uh, not crucified, but martyred with him? It doesn't say how she was killed, um, but it did say that she was killed before Peter. Um, and a lot of the, the um, notes I read on that were, it was more than likely she was killed uh, before Peter as a way to try to get Peter to recant his actions. So it really puts um, the story of Peter's martyrdom in more perspective for me, because not only were they trying to, again, they were trying to get him to recant what he said about Jesus, but they killed his wife first, which is just crazy to think about, you know, and he still didn't. Um, give in 
and was martyred because of it. So, another one. And this one, I'm not willing to die on. The first two, I can prove is scripture. Number three, number three is a little off. But, again, it is something that we used to believe way back in the day. And now, because again, because we have this idea that Peter was the first pope and was not married or was celibate, now we have this idea that I'm going to have to be put forward again that it can't be true. And again, this is the one I don't have as much proof about, but we'll go through it anyway. Okay, number three. If Peter was married, married people have sex. Having sex means having children. Most notably, um, the child that I do believe is Peter's would be John Mark. So we're going to read Mark 14, 51. Okay, so who is John Mark? John Mark is, first of all, the person who wrote the Gospel of Mark, which is Peter's um, Peter's telling of the Gospel of Jesus and what happened. So a lot of people say that Peter didn't write Mark. Peter didn't write First Peter, Peter didn't write Second Peter, and instead had John Mark write them because John Mark was more learned than him. No, I think it was because he was his son. But there's another thing. John Mark not only wrote the book of Mark from Peter's lips, John Mark was there. So Mark 14, 51, and this is um, when Jesus has been taken away in the Garden of Gethsemane right before he's about to be crucified. It says... One young man following behind was clothed only in a long linen shirt when the mob tried to grab him and slipped out of his shirt and he ran away naked. Okay. In the Gospel of Mark is the only place that this story is recorded. And most people will agree that that's John Mark. So John Mark, very groggily, sees all the disciples leaving. He's witness to this. He, he is there. He is witness to this. He's young at the time, but he follows. Why? Because his dad's going. His dad is Peter. In more than one spot in scripture, Peter literally calls John Mark his son. And we'll get to that. So not only does Peter record the book of Mark, but he's actually there. Why is he there? He's a young boy. Young man, however you want to call him. Why does he get to tag along? Because his dad's Peter. Okay, so we're going to go on farther here. We're going to read Acts 12, verses 12 through 16. All right, Acts 12, verses 12 through 16 say... And this is when Peter is imprisoned and he escapes with the help of an angel and he leaves. Okay. We're going to go back to verse 11. 
Peter finally came to his senses. It's really true, he said. The Lord has sent his angel and saved me from Herod and from what the Jewish leaders had planned to do to me. When he realized this, he went to the home of Mary, the mother of John Mark, where many were gathered for prayer. He knocked at the door in the gate, and a servant girl named Rhonda came to open it. And she recognized Peter's voice. She was so overjoyed that instead of opening the door, she ran back inside and said, Hey, Peter's standing at the door. You're out of your mind, they said. When she insisted, they decided it must be an angel. Meanwhile, Peter kept knocking. When they finally opened the door and saw it was him, they were amazed. Um, let's see. He motioned them to be quiet, and but motioning them with his hand to be silent. He described to them how the Lord had brought him out of prison and how he said, Tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now, when the day came, there was little. Dis- Let's see. Oh, yeah. Now, when the day came, there was little disturbance among the soldiers over where had Peter gone. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries in order that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judah to Caesarea and spent time there. Okay. So Peter's in prison. He escapes. If you were in prison and you escape. Where do you go? Where's the first place you go? You go home. And we see this a few times. Or we see, we can get this idea from a few different places. He went home to the house of Mary, whose mother was John, Mark. Okay? So there's a lot of this, when you read through the gospel, there's a lot of questions around what they call the third Mary. There is this third Mary whose house they are at. There's a third Mary who's hanging around, who is there all the time. We don't really know anything about her. She's not really referenced as far as her history. Why she's there, we don't know. Um, But we know here that this Mary is the mother of John Mark. And also, the disciples are all praying at her house. Okay, so maybe she had a husband who died and left her this house. Or maybe... Her husband was Peter, whose son was John Mark. And that's why they were all gathered at his physical house to pray for him. And when he got released from prison, he went home. And also, the serving girl, who's a serving girl to the, to the house, okay, recognizes his voice. It doesn't say she recognizes him because he's banging through the gate, through the wall. She recognizes his voice. Meaning she has experience around Peter. Meaning that he has been around this house enough that this servant girl recognizes his voice. All right. And so, that's kind of my argument there as far as John Mark being his son. We'll see a few more places, but we're going to make another jump again. I don't have as much evidence for that one, but you can infer a lot from there. It connects a lot of dots. It makes a lot of sense to me personally. But again, it's a theory that's completely squashed because Peter can't have children if he's the Pope. But we're going to move on. All right, number four. Peter is in Rome when he writes 1 Peter. Okay? So after Peter escapes from prison, um, 
believers that Peter is the first pope would then have you believe that Peter then immediately goes to Rome. Because Rome is where the Catholic Church was founded. Rome is where he was crucified. Um, and so, if he's going to be the Pope, he's got to be in Rome, because that's the founding of the church. That is where the church is. The church, they even believe that where Peter was crucified, which is not recorded, by the way, um, is actually at the foot base of the temple of Vatican City, basically of what would be built later. I mean, I don't have so much evidence to say that it's not, but I couldn't find anywhere in the stories that said where he was crucified. So I don't know where they get that from, but that's, you know, I didn't look at that one so much. But anyway, they believe that Peter wrote 1 Peter from Rome. Okay, again, a Catholic idea trying to prove that he is the first pope. So we are going to read 1 Peter 5, 12 through 13. Okay, this is at the end of 1 Peter. It says, I have written and sent this short letter to you with the help of Silas, who I commanded to you as a faithful brother. My, my purpose in writing is to encourage you and assure you that what you are experiencing is truly part of God's grace for you. Stand firm in this grace. Your sister church here in Babylon sends you greetings, and so does my son, John Mark. Okay. So, once again, Peter doesn't ever talk to anyone in reference when he says, my son. He doesn't just go around calling people like, yo, my son, yo, my brother. He doesn't say that. He only ever references my son, John Mark, as John Mark. It's the only person he calls his son. Also, very blatantly, it says right here, your sister church here in Babylon sends you greetings. Okay, so where do we get this idea when he purposely says right here that your sister church here in Babylon sends you greetings, meaning that he is in Babylon when he writes this, not Rome. I don't know. So it goes back to using the methods of hermeneutical Bible study, meaning one of them that we are going to use the literal term unless given a good reason otherwise. So when Peter says that he is in Babylon, we're going to believe that he is in Babylon. So I'm going to prove this to you even more. So if we go back into the first chapter of 1 Peter, verse 1, This letter is from Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. I am writing to God's chosen people who are living as foreigners in the provinces of Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So, get yourself a map. Look up where all those places are. Do you know where they are? They're all directly around Babylon. Like, they surround it. That's where those places are. So, if he is writing to those people, which says right there in 1 Peter, this is who he is writing to. This is his audience. If he's writing to those people, why would he say Babylon when he really meant Rome? They say that Babylon is really like hearkening back to the Old Testament as a place of sin and destruction and um, depravity. And so he is actually referencing Rome. But if we're going to, in the first chapter of Peter, take those five physical cities or places as the literal term, meaning those are the ones that he means, 
Why are we then going to disobey that rule when it comes to Babylon and really think for some weird reason that he means Rome when Rome's not even his audience? His audience are these people that live directly around Babylon. Would it not be really confusing to you if you were one of those people when you're like, huh? You know, you wouldn't even, that wouldn't make sense. You know, and Peter's goal here is not to confuse his audience. Um, also, again, he calls John Mark his son. Um, another thing to important to note there is that uh, it says that Silas is the one writing um, the book to him. Um, John Mark is there. So that's the other great thing to note. So after Peter is rescued from prison, um, the Catholics would believe to say he went directly to Rome and ministered there. Okay, and that's why they say that when he says this, he really means Rome because it backs up a theory that after he fled Herod, he went to Rome. Okay, but we know that John Mark didn't. John Mark would go on missionary journeys with Paul, then be kicked off those missionary journeys, Barabbas, the whole thing, Barnabas, the whole thing. Anyways, he doesn't do that. He goes to Babylon. Again, right here, it says he's in Babylon. So why would we not believe that? He doesn't take John Mark with him because John Mark, because he's kind of going on the run. He leaves John Mark there. And I really do think sets up with the disciples. Hey, I have to run. I have to flee. Please use my son in ministry. Send him to me later. They agree. They set him up with Paul. That doesn't go well. And at some point, he goes and meets his dad. Probably after a letter when his dad gets settled in Babylon he goes and meets his dad. We don't know why John Mark is there. It's not recorded, but he's there. Why else would he be there? You gotta go be with your old man. Not in Rome. In Babylon. Again, if we're gonna take all these other places, it's, it's that's the thing. When you start manipulating just one thing to fit a narrative, it calls into question the entire thing. If we're gonna say, when he says Babylon, he really means Rome. Then I'm also going to say when he means Galatia, he also means uh, North Carolina. Okay, so see what I did there? You either have to believe it means what it means or that you can interpret anything as anything. And if you believe you can interpret anything as anything, then the whole point falls apart. That's the problem when you try to nitpick scripture to fit your narrative instead of letting the God-breathed scripture dictate to you what it means. That's the whole purpose of hermeneutical Bible study is that it's a systematic way of studying scripture, that it takes out all your own bias um, and foreknowledge out of the fact, out of the equation, and lets the scripture say really just what it says, what it means. That's why it's important. Three rules of hermeneutical Bible study. The three main rules. I'm just going to quote them now. You've probably heard me quote them before, but I think I can't say them enough. Is First of all, always use the literal term unless given a good reason otherwise. We use that one a lot here. Second, always interpret Scripture with Scripture. If you have a question about the Bible, look in the Bible for the answer. It's there every time. Um, which we use that one a lot in today's lesson too. And third is context, context, context. Meaning, don't just read one verse and peck it out to prove your point. You got to read the whole thing. And I tried to really show you guys an overarching 
story or theme here to prove the points I was trying to make to keep the whole thing in context. I'll try to do a good job for you with that, guys, too. So, um, without further ado, what I'll say is whether you believe what I have to say about Peter or not, whether you have to believe what I say about his wife or not, about John Mark being his son, about where he wrote First Peter from, and all the implications that those things come from. If you don't believe me about anything, any of those things, then at least do me this favor. Do your own studying. Do not take what I have to say at face value. Question the narrative. Do your own studying. Feather it out for yourself. That's one of the things that Jesus did when he died on the cross and saved you from your sin if you believe in him is he gave you the ability when the curtain was torn into to have direct access to him and through that direct access to his word. And you have the ability to appropriately interpret scripture. You're not stupid. The Bible isn't complicated. It's meant for everyone. It's meant for you. It is meant for me. God wants to have this relationship with you and with me in a personal relationship. And with that is a personal understanding of his scriptures. You know, I hate it when people are like, oh yeah, <clears throat> you know, I'll have to ask my pastor what this means, or the Bible's too complicated for me, or I really just go with whatever my Bible commentator says. No. The Bible is there for you. Those are all tools and those are great resources, but you have the ability. Do your own research. Don't just follow blindly along like a dead sheep. Muster it out for yourself. Okay. <clears throat> Hopefully you guys enjoyed uh, today's lesson uh, or episode. <laughs> I feel like a lesson. Sorry, I teach so much sometimes I get a teachery voice. Hopefully you guys enjoyed uh, today's episode. Um, if you have any feedback, you want to say I'm full of crap, that's fine. Shoot me an email. That's why I drive to work at gmail.com. All one word, no spaces, no caps. If you have ideas for my 100th episode, please do shout out. Or if you just want to say hello, I don't really care. Share a joke. I had one time someone emailed me a joke that was vaguely threatening. Um, go ahead. So, I'll talk to you guys later. Let's go ahead and pray. Dear Jesus, I just thank you for this day, Lord. Thank you for everything you've given us. Thank you for my, my listeners and just for my family. And I thank you for dying on the cross for our sins, Lord, and opening the gateway between God and man, allowing us to have this relationship with you, Lord. And we know that you did it out of love because you love us, Lord, and because... Um, we are your creation. So Lord, I pray for my listeners that they learn something from this and would strive after you. In your name, amen. All right, guys, I'll talk to you later. Bye.